If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6 this morning, it's page 954 if you are using a Bible that's provided for you. Um, also, if you want to put your finger uh, in the book of Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, um, you got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. Uh, Galatians 5, if you are using a Bible provided for you in the front of your chair, uh, page 975. And we're going to take up uh, where we left off. I do hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. How many of you had family, either visiting or you visited family? Okay, a good amount of you. Um, so hopefully you had a great time together, and uh, now we're all excited for the Christmas season um, with uh, everything that that involves, right? Uh, some busy season, but yet please don't forget um, the reason we celebrate Jesus Christ, that he, 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 has, he came into the world to do for us what we cannot do. So let's not find our satisfaction um, in, in material things and all of those things because it's actually the, the very reason behind Christmas is the exact opposite of all of that. None of these th- those things can satisfy us, right? Uh, it, it's Christ and Christ alone. And as, uh, as we are going to continue where we left off in 1 Corinthians last week, uh, last week didn't quite get as far as uh, I wanted to. Uh, we just looked at the first three verses of, of chapter 6, and uh, John reread the, the passage for us. Um, and as we jump back into this, I want to remind you of several takeaway points. Uh, a lot goes on in a week, right? Uh, we, we, we don't remember what happens the very next day, let alone a week. So, so some takeaway points is that, number one, conflict or disputes will come into your life. We talked about that last week. You know that, that, that conflicts and disputes, it's not a matter of if they'll come, but when they come. We're an imperfect people. Uh, we as a church, we're an imperfect church waiting for the day Christ uh, finishes that work of perfection in us when we uh, are a spotless bride. Uh, we look forward to that day, but conflicts and disputes will come. Mark it down. Uh, Secondly, what you believe or your theology does matter. Your theology, what you believe, it is to be a guide as to how you process things, both what you see and what happens to you, but it's also to be a guide in the way you react to those things, a guide in how you live. So it's unprofitable to say you believe in something and then live contrary to that belief, right? That shows that we don't really believe what we say we believe. You know, this week I've been just thinking about a a couple examples where, where, where this is the case in our everyday lives. And I want to just uh, give you a couple examples and then we're going to look specifically at 1 Corinthians 6 and what's being dealt with there. Uh, But we all would say, theologically, that the Bible teaches, for instance, that God is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? That God is in control. That nothing passes through God's hand, uh, nothing comes into this world or in our lives that doesn't first pass through God's hands, that God doesn't know about. 
So we, we can believe that and we can uh, show in Scripture, hopefully, um, where that's found in Scripture. But boy, isn't it hard to actually live that out when unexpected things happen in your life? To truly say, Lord, I believe that you are sovereign. I believe you're in control. And Lord, now is the opportunity you've given me to live out that belief. Boy, it's easy to say we believe God is in control, but yet we live as if he's not in control. So which one holds sway? What we say with our heads or the way we live? How about, and this kind of touches on what we're reading in 1 Corinthians, what we've read uh, the entire time. We are one body in Christ. We're, we're, to, we're to be unified. Jesus has unified us. And we know that with our head, and we believe that, and we teach that. But man, the moment that somebody rubs us the wrong way or we disagree with something, seeds of disunity begin to be sown in our hearts, and we're not careful, and we start talking to other people about things. And what we say we believe and what we practice wind up being two different things. What about... All of the Bible passages where Jesus says that we are to cast our care upon Him for, for He uh, cares for us, 1 Peter 5, that, that God cares for us, that the love of God has been fully displayed to us through the sending of Jesus as we think about this Christmas season. And man, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and if he did not withhold his own son from us, how shall he not freely give us all things, all those things that pertain to our spiritual lives and our needs? And man, we're quick to say, God loves us with a perfect fatherly love. Yet then in our everyday lives, we struggle believing that God truly does unconditionally love us as His children. That somehow we have to perform uh, to earn God's favor. That somehow uh, there's something left on the table that, that has to be gotten by our own goodness. You see, we may believe the right thing, but we don't live it out. Just this past week, I uh, came across this, uh, an, uh, a short article, devotional article from Paul Tripp. Many of you are familiar with him. Uh, we've had uh, shown videos of him with, uh, how to, uh, with uh, parental counseling seminars and marriage seminars. Uh, this is what he said, which is exactly in line with what we've been talking about the, two, the past two weeks. The enemy of your soul, which is Satan, will happily allow you to have correct doctrine if in your practical daily life, he can control the thoughts and motives of your heart. And in so doing, control the way you act, react, and respond. Have you ever sensed this in your life? That man, um, the, the, the moment that you really start to, to, to walk by faith, to be living for Christ, it seems that things actually get harder. 
Isn't this true in the life of a church? I mean, the life of a church, the church can believe all of the right things and have their doctrine right in a row and and a great doctrinal statement and what is said from the pulpit uh, are good things, but, but yet we as churches can be content to stop there. What about when we as a church and as individuals in the church start to really get serious about sharing our faith. About being a light for Christ in our community and where He has put us as individuals. It is that church that gets Satan's attention. Satan is so happy for us to believe all the right things as long as it doesn't affect our life. Well, last week we looked at at two aspects of theology that Paul emphasizes that should be an impact on how the church in Corinth lived out their belief and should be an impact to us. Because we can believe certain things of what we are pointing out, our theology of different areas, but have it, again, not impact our life. Last week, we looked at two areas of theology that Paul talks about in chapter 6. First of all, your theology of the church. Remember verse 1, which one of you has a grievance against another? Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The church is composed of a group of believers who have been set apart by God we talked last week about. And even in that body of believers where uh, we've been set apart by God, we we are saints, we still struggle with sin, and, and grievances come. And in this context, it was a grievance of such a matter that these two or however many individuals were involved, were going, verse 1 says, to the unrighteous to settle it, the pagan courts. In going to the unrighteous, they themselves were acting like the unrighteous. You see, we read in 1 Corinthians 6 that brother or sister should not take another brother or sister to court. Now remember last week, we prefaced this by saying we are not talking about criminal situations. These are civil situations, disagreements between individuals where Christian was taking Christian to court. We do not sweep under the rug criminal activity even when it involves another believer. That would be wrong. But they were going to court. And in verse 5, and we'll talk about this more, I say this to, to your shame. Our theology of the church, the takeaway we talked about last week is, if the church is composed of sanctified believers, then we must be a people that act differently than those who are of the world. The way we handle things should be different than those who don't know Christ. We go, we looked at Matthew 18 last week, we go to the person who has offended us 
not go behind their backs or act in an ungodly manner. But then we talk secondly, and this is where we stopped, the second aspect of theology that Paul says, this belief should impact the way you live. Number two was your theology of, and there's here's that big word, eschatology. And again, we explained last week, that simply means end time events. Verse two, Paul talks about saints will judge the world. If the world is judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases or matters of everyday life? When Jesus comes back, because we're united to Christ, we are going to have that final say along with Christ's final verdict on the world. So Paul says, man, if if we're going to be a part of this, can, can you as the church not come alongside aside one another and determine matters of everyday happenings? And then he goes further in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So even the final verdict on, on fallen angels, we, because we are connected to Christ, we will take part in that final verdict where they are confined to the lake of fire forever. Paul says, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? If we are involved in cosmic verdicts, how much more things pertaining to this life within the body of believers? You see, what allows Christians to be able to come alongside one another and to be able to settle disputes? It is that we have a common set of beliefs that Jesus is Lord, that we do not live according to ourselves, we live for Him, and therefore we want to please Him in our actions, in our attitudes, and the way we show love to one another. That should be the common bond that we all share that allows us to come to common conclusions regarding matters of everyday life. Now, you know this in your own marriages. If you're married or if you're single with, with, within your family unit or within your friends, that when do conflicts arise in your life? It's when that core foundation of what we are called to live according to, to Christ, His glory, Um, loving others more than ourselves, when we kind of toss those things to the side and we start living for self, that's when true conflict arises, doesn't it? That is when all of the sudden the issues begin to grow to cosmic proportions, so to speak. The only way to settle these things we are going to see this morning is to humble ourselves and to turn back to Christ. So again, the key principle of our series, let's say this together, okay? Let's go to the next slide. We, ready? One, two, three. We must cling 
to what truly matters. Now, what truly matters here in chapter 6? That biblical people should handle things biblically. Hasn't that been the problem throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians? People that claim to follow Christ are acting as if they were not followers of Christ. And we are going to continue looking this morning at how our view of eschatology, and then we're going to look at one final perspective of theology, should impact the way we live. We're going to start this morning by looking. We already talked about, Paul says, this is what's to come. Here you are going to pagans to make official decisions, and that should be done within the church. I mean, you're going to be a part of judging the world. You're going to be a part of judging angels. Can't you handle matters regarding everyday life in your congregation? Now Paul deals with, so what about now? How does this affect your everyday? Let's, Let's open up with a word of prayer. God, would you take this time we have to to look at your word? Father, this morning we, we have the very danger of being what James says, a hearer of the word and not a doer. In the things that that we see from your word this morning. God, we can do nothing without you. We are in total dependence upon you. Lord, we are in complete dependence for you to open our minds to understand your truth. Lord, for the Holy Spirit to show us what your truth is and how that affects our life. Lord, so we ask that you would be at work in our hearts today. And then, Lord, we ask that you would empower us to live out as we leave this auditorium, as we go home amongst our family, as we go to our workplaces, as we are alone by ourselves, Lord, we ask that these truths would be so impressed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit that, Lord, He would remind us of these things and empower us to live them out to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what about now? In verse 4, Paul transitions from saying, this is what is coming, and why are you, um, uh, if this is true, then why this, to now he goes on to describe further what's, going on in the immediate. In verse 4, we see a truly sad reality. He says, So if you have such cases, in other words, such cases that are their everyday earthly matters, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This harkens back to verse 1 where he says, uh, does someone dare, are they bold enough to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
So the sad reality is, is these believers, they are so caught up in whatever this discrepancy is, that they are quick to go to earthly pagan courts, which we talked about last week. Uh, They weren't even fair courts to try to resolve the issue. And the reason that the issue would be resolved in a pagan court is because they wanted to get their own way not to do the Christ-like thing. And in going to these pagan courts that that, uh, uh, verse 1 describes as the unrighteous, they are going to individuals, verse 4 says, people that have no standing in the church. In other words, they were of no value, of no worth. They were to be looked down upon. They were to be rejected as far as determining things between Christians. What's really interesting is the last time that this word is used, those who have no standing, it's referring to believers in the world's eyes. In chapter 1 and verse 28, if you look at that, just flip over a page or two. God chose what is low, and here's the word, no standing, that that we read in verse 6, and despised. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You remember that passage, verses 26 to 31, it's saying, Christians, remember your calling. You were not high, you were not mighty, you were not considered noble, most of you. Why did God call the lowly to himself? Because God chooses what is low and despised in the eyes of the world to shame worldly wisdom. And here in chapter 6, it's reversed. These Christians should be viewing, you know what? We don't view as high and mighty that which the world views as high and mighty because we see the example that that God despises the wisdom of this world. That which seems mighty according to the standards of this world. And here the church was abandoning their identity, their commitment to value the things God values in order to pursue their own selfish ends. Can I ask you, how many of you are in danger of doing that this morning? It may not be that a situation has arisen arisen that you are tempted to take another believer to court. But you are valuing as great What God says is worth nothing when it comes to spiritual matters, what truly matters. Did you know we can do that this Christmas season? Man, we get so occupied with the materialism and we get so occupied with with having more and and, and going into debt here and, and doing this and doing that that we miss out entirely the true value of Christmas. We can be so caught up with our careers. We can be so caught up as a married couple of being right. We can be so caught up as parents with having children that look good to those that are outside the family that we are going about all the wrong methods 
of accomplishing those things. You see, there's a sad reality here. Here they are. Because of our identity in Jesus Christ, our union to Him, we know what is to come so far supersedes that which is here. Yet these Christians were throwing that out the window to pursue that which seems wise according to the world. It's easy to have strong opinions about end-time events and yet not be living in light of Christ's return at all. Not only was there a sad reality going on here, there was a great discrepancy that was occurring in these individuals' lives, in the life of this church. Here they are going before those who, who have no standing in the church. The church is not to take their word as the way of Christ. And then Paul says this, I say this to your shame. In other words, Paul is saying, shame on you, church. Shame on you, Christian. What a great discrepancy is taking place here. You see, what this first discrepancy we see that is taking place is that according to verse 1, these Christians were being very bold, very daring. Yet in reality, there was shame in their boldness. What a discrepancy. Bold, yet what a shame. Did you know that we can have a zeal, but that zeal be unbiblical? Like what... Paul says about um, uh, the, 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 the Jewish believers that rejected their Messiah, they have a great zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. Shame in their boldness. You see, Paul is simply here exposing the shame that their actions are bringing upon them. Now, it's really interesting that if you uh, look back um, at, let's see, I think it's chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul is saying to them then, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In verse 14, Paul is saying, "Um, I'm not saying this to, to, to shame you, to make you hang your head down, but I'm admonishing you to change. And the thing that he was talking about, we looked at it in chapter 4, and and you can read it in verses 8 to 13, that they were having a wrong viewpoint of what the Christian life was all about. They expected to be rich, to have everything now, and not endure the path to discipleship, which is a path of self-denial and following Christ, waiting for that which is yet to come. And Paul says, you're thinking needs to be changed. And I'm not saying this to make you ashamed. I'm saying this to encourage you to rethink the, way, the path you're about to partake on, the path you're going. So what's the difference in chapter 6? In chapter, uh, chapter 6, Paul's saying, I am, this is a shame. You should be ashamed. You should hang your head down. It's because they did not heed 
the warning and they kept going their own path and now it's being manifested both outside in the community and further division within the church. You know, there comes a point in time that in order for the Lord to truly change us, He has to break us. That there needs to be true repentance is that there is a reality of this is the path I have taken. Here are the decisions that I have made and I am ashamed of it. I am humbled. Now, true Biblical repentance, we don't wallow in our shame, but in our brokenness, it causes us to see the true reality and cause us to run back to Christ. But we need to be ashamed. In fact, Paul uses this phrase again later in 1 Corinthians 15, dealing with the resurrection of Christ. And in Chapter 15, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, the Corinthians in chapter 15, they were associating with those who denied the resurrection. And Paul is saying their beliefs, they have no knowledge of God. They have no knowledge of the truth. And their beliefs are infiltrating your minds and the church. And you have got to separate from that. It is shameful what you're allowing to take place. You are in a drunken stupor. You are not aware that Christ's return is near. We are living in the last days. You see, there can be a true shame in our boldness. The greatest thing that the Lord can do in your life is to reveal sin to you. To produce a heart of repentance and true sorrow and shame over that sin so that He can build you back up. I would much rather talk with an individual about the Gospel and they tell me very clearly, you know what, I just don't believe it. I just don't think it's true. That person knows the true state of what they believe. The hardest person to evangelize is the person that has a a form of religiosity and they say, yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that's true. And yet their words reveal that, no, they're not truly holding to the gospel message. And to try to convince them that their words are not reflective of the gospel And and, and that's why why, uh, uh, Jesus says, I would rather have you... um, uh, that, that, that you, you should be hot or cold, this lukewarmness, this, this in-between two things. 
let us not equate the boldness that we have when it contradicts Scripture. Let us not equate that with success, with spirituality, with good. He says, I say this to your shame. But then he goes on, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? There's a second discrepancy here. The Corinthians were revealing, they claimed that they were so wise, yet in their wisdom there was actual foolishness. There's foolishness and wisdom. They claimed to be wise, yet they had to go to pagans to settle their disputes. Remember in chapter, uh, chapter 1, the Corinthians, they were, they were bragging that they, 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 they took pride in the fact that they thought that they were wise. They were following the philosophies of this world. And they were wanting to even take leaders like Paul and Apollos and Peter um, and say, you know what, just like the, 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 the world, the culture of, 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 our, of Corinth, as they follow specific leaders, we're going to do that same thing and we're going to divide up these Christian leaders into people that we say we follow and we're going to take pride in that. They claim they were wise, but they were truly fools. So Paul is saying here, by your very actions, you are revealing that you don't have the wisdom that only Christ gives. If you are truly wise, you would be able to take biblical wisdom to settle the disputes between the brothers. But what's happening in verse 6? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. In light of what we see as the believer's destiny in verses 2 and 3, uh, the discrepancy here is that these believers were actually being judged by unbelievers. Now in chapter 5, Pastor Dennis talked about chapter 5 dealing with sin within the local church, unrepentant sin. And remember in, verse, in chapter 5 and verse 12, if you look there, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those uh, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What Paul is saying is, church, you have a responsibility as a body to deal with sin, unrepentant sin, within the, the, the church. Now, you don't go and you don't go outside the church to exercise uh, discipline and correction as you would those inside the church. You leave that to God. Those people do not profess to be believers, but we act in loving correction with those that do claim the name of Christ inside the church. And here we see another instance where the believers were refusing to do this. They were saying, let's pass off on what is our responsibility to each other and let's leave that in the hands of the pagan courts. What a shame. 
brother goes to law against brother. You see the, the division? Brother against brother. And, and then going before unbelievers, not only is that leaving this, the final judgment to someone that does not have the wisdom of Christ, but what a horrible testimony that is. Now where this translates into the 21st century is let's say there's a dispute between two Christians Maybe it's a financial dealing that they've gotten together with and, and something went south and there's a discrepancy. What if we're following Scripture, for those two brothers to go to court against one another would be unbiblical, that there needs to be a resolving of this situation in a Christ-like manner amongst believers. Now, of course, we know that, that certain situations can be above the, the expertise and the, the knowledge of, of individuals within the congregation, but still the congregation is involved in the situation. Praise the Lord. The Lord has, has provided resources for churches, even um, um, uh, groups that, that come and they are arbiters between parties of believers because of this passage for believer not to go to court before uh, with unbelievers now again we are not talking about criminal situations when there are criminal situations there there can be uh, sadly issues of of sexual abuse of physical abuse of 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 uh things that, of, of fraud and things like that, those things need to be handled legally because they are legal crimes. But there needs to be a accountability within the local church in handling these disputes. Individuals, of course, and we're going to talk in... in Chapter, um, in chapter 7, when we get there, we're going to talk even about issues of divorce. When there are legal grounds for divorce, the church should be involved at, uh, and the leadership should be involved to be sure that things are being handled in a biblical way. We, we have accountability with one another. And it should not be, this is my personal decision, and I don't want any other brother or sister interfering with my affairs. That's not what the Bible talks about. There are all sorts of situations where we say, boy, chapter 6 doesn't really apply to me. I don't really need to heed it until we do. <laughs> Isn't that true so many times? Remember as a kid? Yeah, mom, yeah, dad, uh-huh, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And then all of a sudden we don't really listen. Then we're caught in that situation. It's like, what do I do? We do all the wrong things. Did you know I still experience that? Rachel will be like, all right, here's, here's this, here's that, here's that. I'm going to be away. You know, Rachel was, uh, went to, I forgot to mention last week, Rachel uh, went to Michigan. Her grandmother died. Um, and uh, it's kind of like, okay, yep, yeah, got, got it, hear what you're saying, got it all under control. And uh, 
And then you're actually in the situation. You're like, hey, uh, I need to ask you a question. Hey, don't you remember I already talked about that? Uh, Yeah, I just needed a refresher on that. (laughs) This is why passages like this are so crucial for us to put into our hearts so that when the time comes that issues arrive, we already know in the big picture how to respond to those things. It's so hard to make a decision in the heat of the moment. But when we are living out our beliefs, that is what God desires. So as we close out this second, this second aspect of our belief system, of eschatology, of that which is yet to come, that how does, how does the future impact my present, here's the takeaway for you. What we know about the future needs to be reflected in the way we are living now. It doesn't really matter a whole lot about what you know about the future. In your own life, it doesn't really matter that much if you're not living according to that knowledge. Now, Third aspect of our belief system, and we're going to close here with this. We must have a proper theology of the church, that we are a group of committed brothers or sisters, and yes, there's going to be times where we wrong each other, where we we may have a dispute, but we must handle it biblically, your theology of the church. Secondly, your theology of eschatology that let's live in light of who we are in Christ, knowing that because of our position in Christ, that we are joint heirs with Christ. So let's not cling to the things of this world and let's not act like this world. Thirdly, we have to have a proper belief system, a proper theology of true humility. Remember at the beginning this morning I said what this is really all about is humility. We have to understand there's two clear markers on the path to humility. First of all, the first marker is we have to gain an understanding in our belief system of humility to understand what really is true victory and true defeat. What is true victory and true defeat? If you're a Penn State fan, you know, but... (laughs) Oh, that just lost half of you. Everything I say from here on out, you're going to have to be thinking about the game, right? Should I say games? No. (laughs) All right, sorry. Let's get back on track. Understanding true victory and true defeat. Do you know how easy it is with, because we live, accord, uh, we live in the midst of a culture that, that says the exact opposite of what Scripture says, do you know how easy it is to slide into a wrong perspective of what's true victory and true defeat? Look at what Paul says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all 
with one another is already a defeat for you. So here's what we have to understand about true victory and true defeat. What appears to be gain can actually be loss. We can think we are getting ahead and we are actually losing out. In fact, the word already in the original language, the Greek, is the very first word of the sentence to emphasize this truth. Already! You haven't, the case hasn't even been settled yet, but already you have lost when you are going the wrong way to solve this. Already you've lost. Now, if this was a financial dealing, there would be the, the, the individual that would be seeking to gain what he would consider his financial rights. He may win the court case, but lose spiritually. In fact, in verse 7, when it says, um, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Again, in the Greek, it has the idea of a complete loss. It is completely a loss. There is no sense of victory. I like what one, instant, uh, one individual says. Um, it's on the screen for you. He says, in any instance of litigation or uh, a lawsuit, a, a legal matter, the goal is to achieve a personal victory. Paul states as emphatically as he can that the outcome of the present case is already known. No matter, no matter whether the result of the lawsuit, whether the plaintiff or the defendant wins, it is a defeat for both parties, with the church, get this, as a whole, becoming the real loser. They were defeated the moment the legal proceeding began. Since its initiation served as testimony to the church's failure to resolve the conflict as a healthy family would be expected to do. You can come home with your pockets full, yet it's all worth nothing. But also, what appears to be loss on the flip side of that can actually be great gain. That this is the good news. Look at what it says at the, the, the second part of verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, you, your initial reaction, your reaction in your flesh would be like, say what, Paul? What are you wanting me to do? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That doesn't sound too pleasant to me. But what we see here is that God's values are not the same as our values. God's kingdom reverses the values of this world's kingdom. It's interesting that the word here, suffer wrong, is actually a related word in verse 1 to the unrighteous. 
In other words, why not rather than be associated with those that are outside of the church, the unrighteous, shaming the name of Christ and furthering division in the church, why not allow others to do that to you and not respond in kind? Why not then secondly be defrauded? Most likely, these were the two items that were the source of the lawsuit that was happening here. That there was a suffering of wrong and there was um, an accusation of being defrauded here. Most likely, that is what is going on in this situation. And Paul says, rather than have your day in court, which Paul already said in chapter 4, he says that um, my day in court is in eternity, that I don't even place the final verdict on myself spiritually. I let God do that. Why not suffer wrong and be defrauded when it exalts the name of Christ, than to get even or to have your own rights and exalt yourself. You see, this is the way of Christ. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, obviously, this isn't Jesus saying just be a doormat and and let anyone do whatever they want to you, but he is talking here about revenge. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. One another in the body of Christ, everyone, even those of this world that will harm you. You see, we are called to follow the path of discipleship, which is the way of Christ, which involves self-denial. And even when confrontation is needed, Paul is not saying just put your hands in your pocket and just gladly embrace being wronged and defrauded. Yes, there is a seeking to get things right. But at the end of the day, When one is unrepentant, how much better is it to say, you know what? I'll suffer wrong. God is the final judge. Not going to settle for me taking the place of God to be the final judge. I'm not going to let a human court settle a personal disagreement I have with someone else. I'm going to let God have the final say. That is the path of humility because we are denying our own sense of right to magnify Christ. But the path of humility is not only, as we close, understanding what true victory and true defeat is. Secondly, it's understanding the way of the flesh. If you have your finger in Galatians 5, that's where I'd invite you to turn as we close. You may ask, because our hearts are, we still battle with sin, even as Christians. 
And we can so easily deceive ourselves and, and not see ourselves sometimes the way we really are, behaving in a situation or reacting, that we need the mirror of God's word, we need the mirror of others in our lives to, to, re- to reveal that to us. And the Bible gives us a very clear gauge. Are we walking the way of Christ according to the way of Christ or the way of self? Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Look at those in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue to look later on, goes on idolatry, sorcery, then get enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Boy, isn't that an eye-opener? How many times around us is hovering could be sexual sins in the mind. It could be getting on the computer, whether you're a man or a woman. It could be any of those things. Idolatry, putting things above God. Um, sorcery. Um, while, while we're not, probably most of you aren't getting into black magic or things like that, we are inviting those things into our lives. But then... I think what really hits home with many of us, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. You could say, man, Pastor Adam, that described my morning. (laughs) That described my perspective when I looked out my window this morning. Folks, if this is happening around you, the problem is not with those outside of you. It is right here. It is not following the way of Christ. Those outside of us are simply, you know the illustration, the hot water that brings out of the tea bag what's already in there, right? But then after reading this list, and and again, Paul says, and we're going to look at this next week as well uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Man, these things are characteristic of the unrighteous we just read about in chapter 6, verse 1. But then like it's a breath of fresh air, look at verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, these things are spirit-produced, not produced by saying, do this, don't do that. I mean, just reading verse 22, when I read this passage, it's almost like the words are just even easier to say in the midst of what you just read about in verses 19 to 21. This, these characteristics are the things that describe the way of Christ. 
So what's the takeaway from having a proper belief system regarding humility? The takeaway is those who are truly humble will follow the way of Christ. Do not deceive yourself. Those who are humble, who follow the way of Christ, will receive ultimate reward. They are the winners in the end. We need not take matters into our own hands in an unbiblical way. What we believe does indeed matter.